1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK principal, David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust you're you're
2: enjoying Somerset. I won't say sunny Somerset. Uh, and haven't we got a great guest? One of the most experienced uh, commentators and, and uh, industry figures I- I- here in Australia.
1: Well, that's right. Yes. So look, I'm, uh, as uh, David, as you mentioned, I am broadcasting from Somerset. I'm broadcasting very early in the morning here in the inside of Glass House um, in Somerset. And you can say sunny Somerset because that's what it actually has been. But um, we're joined today by John Grimes, the head of the... Um, Smart Energy Council in Australia, joining us from, I think, a cloakroom or a storeroom um, waiting to hear a Prime Minister's speech in Sydney. John, um, is this true? And how are you?
3: It's, it's true. No, fantastic. Uh, David and Giles, absolute pleasure to be here and hopefully we'll get a little bit of face time with the Prime Minister as well to, you know, to reinforce a few key messages.
1: Now, why are you hidden in the storeroom um, waiting for the Prime Minister to speak? Is he expected to say something interesting?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, I'm here because it's a good audio environment for your show, uh, Giles. And, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so with, 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 the, with the, the humbub of, of, of Prime Ministerial activity everywhere, it was about the only quiet place that, that, uh, that I could find that, that I thought we, were, oh. we wouldn't be interrupted in.
1: Look, it's interesting. Um, I'll, I'll just be interested in to get your um, your view just of the overall political environment and just. John, just before we get thing.
2: there, did you have to move any Russian spies out in order to fight, make space for yourself? I'm <laughs> no, sorry, let's keep, keep, keep mate, going. Mate, keep going, John. B- b-
3: b- b- the AFP might bust in here. They might think that I'm a Russian spy. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I was just thinking, I was just really interested to get your take on how things have changed and how dramatically over the last six months. I mean, we can probably observe, um, you know, just from all of the sort of the excitement about new projects and the sort of the transitional announcements. And uh, it's just a bit funny here. I'm in the UK and I feel like I've sort of flipped back five or 10 years, gone back to the dark ages of the Abbott government. You know, we've got governments here announcing the banning of new solar farms on farmland because they want to grow more crops. And it's all about growth, growth, growth. We've got government announcing is they're going to open up sort of other parts of the country to fracking and refusing to issue guidelines on energy efficiency and advice on energy efficiency because they don't want to tell people what to do, even though the energy bills have actually quadrupled here. It's just, um, I just feel like I've sort of flipped back into the lapse of insanity. But please tell me you're quite close to the sort of corridors and power in, in, in government and in Canberra, and we do see a lot of enthusiasm about the announcements and things like that, but do tell me that things really have changed in, in Australia and to what extent
3: the best way i can describe it is that i feel like right now i'm inside a washing machine and that's because you're (laughs) in a (laughs) store room the the audio quality might be the same child so uh, for for, for nine for nine years you know we've had a whole lot of initiatives you know for example hey dfat department of foreign affairs and trade why don't we do a, a capacity building train the trainer type activity focused at the Pacific region, for example, in order to make sure that all of those countries not only get the, you know, the solar you know, and the battery assets that they need, but they've got a local capacity to maintain them and to get the most out of them over the long term. And the officials in places like DFAT would say, well, that sounds like a brilliant idea. And of course, it'd be pushed off the line, and as soon as it got to the political level, it'd be killed dead. So what we've got is nine years' worth of great initiatives. That's just one example that now government departments all over are calling us and saying hey John you know you came in with this uh, you know capacity building in the pacific initiative four years ago <laughs> well we'd love to do that now so it just feels like wow what a change turbocharged is how I describe it and the other thing that's really evident is that the Commonwealth and the states are on the same page you know in terms of their planning around energy and so I, I have gleeful conversations you know I'm not so gleeful but but the ministers the state ministers that I'm talk, talking to absolutely are because for the first time they're on the same page you've got a federal government who wants to to move who's got good ideas who's got a plan and they can come together and coalesce and really turbocharge things so exciting bit daunting certainly hectic um, but very, very positive.
2: And so, John, um, for for the Smart Energy Council, I know you you plan things out quite carefully for the year ahead, and listen to what your 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 members are saying a lot, which are you know the big and the small solar industry. What 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 are your priorities for the next uh, for the next twelve
3: months? So probably the the, the first cab off the rank. Is you know this proposal to have a capacity mechanism that the ESB just just would not let go of. Um, that's been a big concern to everybody. Also, locational based pricing for large scale solar farms and wind farms. And so that, they're two big problems. And so we've been working hard to try and to try and modify those because what the, what the energy system really needs is a massive coordinated build out of energy storage capability if you get the energy storage into the into the network, then that then allows the opening up of more you know, variable renewables coming online. So our message to the government is that you can't get to 82% renewables by 2030, you can't get 43% emissions reduction by 2030 without substantially increasing energy storage capacity. And that will be done in two ways. First is large scale, and that probably means, and we're working on a, on, on a scheme, we've got a really fantastic brains trust of some of the world's, sorry, Australia's, well, the world's best, best energy planners uh, in that in that forum. And uh, so, so large scale, so it might be a reverse auction type scheme or some other framework to actually get that large scale storage built, appropriate to the needs of each state and territory. And the second component will be actually some kind of incentive program for small scale storage. Because we need storage at every level, built quickly, all over Australia, if we're going to any chance of meeting these key milestones. Um, uh, so that that's probably the, the first the first cab off the rank.
2: And just what just before I hand back to Giles, I'm interested because in, for me actually storage is only the second thing. I, I want to get I I want to get more bulk wind and solar built and the transmission built. I think it it needs to come even before the storage. But everyone's got their own ideas. But I am interested in the uh, household batteries, which of course the ISP thinks could be the main storage unit. Uh, Is there enough supply at the right price if we actually had the incentive program? Could, are there, you know, I mean, because household batteries are are something we've talked about for, uh, since I've been talking about them for at least eight years. And, you know, the price has only gone up, nothing's ever happened. uh, And installations are there, 30 or 40,000 are sold every year, but when we need to be selling 150,000, say, or 200,000.
3: Yeah, uh, look, completely agree, and that's why we need an industry brains trust who are inside the industry, at the coal front, to really say, what what are the programs that are gonna unlock this and actually bring this forward? And so that's really the membership base to actually provide that expert advice and kind of direct us in terms of where that's gonna be you know, best placed. The good news is that we have a distributed energy resources working group with about 30 companies actively involved I think they're meeting fortnightly have been doing that for about the last four or five months maybe six months or more Uh, and they're providing some really good insights into the practical things that we can do the second thing we need to look at is the legislative framework we've got the existing renewable energy target so the STC framework how could we harness and make changes you know the least changes possible that would unlock some some capacity there for, for storage, but but uh, I think David, I just I, I completely agree with you. I mean, one of the problems has been actually global pressure, prices rising, not prices falling. A lot of those prices have been kind of absorbed by the the, the, the battery companies at the moment. But I want to get to a point where stationary battery is competitive with 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 um, uh, electric vehicle batteries because at the moment we're paying a massive premium for stationary energy, and that's because there's so much demand for electric vehicle batteries. And probably one of the ways that Australia could help unlock that and change that paradigm is how about this as a novel idea, that we value add lithium ion battery minerals in Australia, and we actually look at building at scale lithium ion batteries that we export to the world. Today, we, we, we dig up essentially dirt, put it onto a ship and send it overseas and somebody else gets all of the value of the value added process and the final very expensive products. You know, Why wouldn't we have that capacity in this country and then be a, a, a trusted supplier to our friends all around the world? That would be big thinking, that would help unlock some of these problems, create more supply and bring prices down.
1: Is there an indication that um, there are some serious efforts then, John, of actually making this happen? I mean, we do hear some stories from time to time about battery battery manufacturing Australia's first gigafactory. I think there's been a test or a pilot plant up near the Tamago smelter. Um, I guess you've had people like Twiggy Forrest talking about the potential for battery manufacturing, although I think he's focusing on electrolysers at the moment. What can you tell us sort of inside, maybe without revealing names, but, I mean, how close are people are are they to actually seizing this opportunity or what do they need for government
3: Great question so a couple of weeks ago I was in India and I went to India with a very open mind could we conceivably think about India as being a supply partner for solar components um, and you know what is the opportunity for collaboration between India and Australia in the smart energy space and it was really a fact-finding mission but what I, what I learned firstly is that India is moving at scale to solar module manufacturing, and, and so we've got you know, Alliance Renew, uh, Tata, Avada, others, all building three, four, five gigawatt solar manu- solar module factories, and they're going way back in the production line to actually do you know wafers, cells, and solar ingots actually, so all the way back in the in the value chain. So that that's interesting, but the issue that really set those big companies, these are multi-billion dollar companies out of out of India, very big companies. The thing that really got their attention is investing in battery manufacturing in Australia. They say this is just a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you have that capacity in Australia um, and, and a partnership with India, which is set to become, they tell me, the world's largest lithium-ion battery market in the world. In fact, the month that I was there, Electric vehicles in India, of course, most of them are two-wheelers, right? And then there's what they call the three-wheeler market, which are kind of little utility, you know, um, motorcycle things. And when I was there, the month I was there, in the three-wheeler category, a majority, more than 50% of all the three-wheelers sold in India that month were electric vehicles. This is a bottom-up revolution. So it's not rich, rich people buying Teslas. It's poor people buying these utility vehicles for agricultural and commercial use that are leading the charge in, in that jurisdiction. So there, there is huge interest, literally billions of dollars that could be unlocked. Great work being done by people like the West Australian government that have done a detailed analysis of all the things you'd need to put in place to make that happen. And real competition between the states and territories. You know, if you were to talk about this with uh, Minister Dabrini in Queensland, that they'd, they'd, they'd fall over themselves to attract that capacity into into Queensland or into Western Australia or into South Australia. So, so all of the conditions are right. We just need a little bit of strategic buttressing, bringing the pieces together, entirely achievable.
2: And John, I think you ought to be congratulated, or at least I'd like to congratulate you. You, 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 you may have been in India, partly at least, to receive a, a very significant award from the uh, Indian government uh, presented by the Indian Minister for the Environment, weren't you?
3: Look, I was blindsided. So, uh, so uh, you know, I was uh, really dumbfounded. So uh, the, the Indian government, um, two cabinet ministers, um, a national cabinet ministers, presented the award, the, the uh, American Acting Ambassador. So I was uh, humbled and honoured. And um, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's real traction, real opportunity. Um, and, and something, you know, we haven't talked about publicly, but something we are actively planning now is to take a delegation of Australian industry to India in 2023. Um, They're particularly interested in innovations around the efficiency of solar cells, electric vehicles is a huge opportunity, renewable hydrogen, and there are some great opportunities for cross-seasonal collaboration because when renewable hydrogen is at peak production in in India, it's wintertime here, and so ours isn't going to be firing to the same level. And vice versa. So, what can you do strategically around that sort of stuff as well? So, re- really interesting and, and fascinating work.
2: Push the cable on from Singapore to India, maybe. I, I note that China sold uh, over six hundred thousand electric uh, new energy vehicles in one month, and it's been doing that, you know, several months in a row. So, there's a lot of competition. I I must say, uh, not that I would ever rain on anyone's party, but but I I do have my doubts about Australia as a battery manufacturing location because uh, of the value chain, and you know, is it is Australia's historic expertise is not, for instance, in making steel; it's in shipping iron ore to where the steel is used, and the steel manufacturers are there and in, to my mind, there are some of the same issues around batteries, but uh, I, I'm probably a, a very conservative. I, I wanted to ask about an, a, 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 another thing, which is, you know, we've seen a lot of states, and you talk about this competition, which we've seen all around the world for resources, and uh, I do think we need to get our priorities lined up, and, and we saw at the um, uh, Financial Review Conference this year, Uh, A lot of talk about another big increase in power prices coming through, which to me means we should all be putting more rooftop uh, uh, solar and batteries in because my own costs have gone down to, I'm just laughing, you know, I don't pay anything for the electricity for the car, I don't pay any electricity bills, but so I don't really care, but people ask me about it all the time. Uh, do you think the competition between the states, I mean, you know, is, is a good thing that Queensland and New South, New South Wales and Victoria are all pursuing their targets independently? And, and is there a role anymore for, for the ESB, which seems to be coming up with a lot of policy that no one likes? I mean, I wonder whether the NEM even has a future.
3: Yeah, two, two questions there. Good questions. Really good questions. So, you know, the first one is really about the states. Ideally, the states, the states have responsibility. They know what they need in their own local network to deliver electricity, the cleanest electricity, at the lowest cost. But you're quite right, there's a lot that can be done in terms of national coordination, and particularly through the NEM, and the Commonwealth has a really important role to play. You know, it's not efficient for us to be kind of recreating and working in silos in essentially an integrated network, so there has to be that coordination. Um, so so some competition is good, you know, and, and I like to see the things, for example, that the Queensland government has done with their big announcement for their massive renewable energy targets, their super grid in that state, um, and, and you know, the massive investment in storage, particularly pumped hydro storage. On the second question, which comes to the ASB, I've got to say that that probably is one of the most disappointing policy bodies or advisory bodies that, that I can think of that has been set up in Australian history that they've failed to come up with appropriate recommendations that are effectively going to help solve and transition the economy. And that is because, in my view, they've been very focused on the old paradigm, centralised infrastructure. So, so the sorts of things they come up with are, how do you, how do you essentially penalise, you know, large-scale renewable energy coming out online? So this, this location-based pricing mechanism, so the old Kogati that, you know, just refuses to die. How do you get away from their, their their ideas to provide subsidies to big existing generators, their capacity mechanisms so-called? You know, they've just failed to grasp the transaction that, that, that is a reality and come up with ways that are going to help yeah. solve that. So in my view, increasingly irrelevant. I actually think they should be abolished uh, and I think it'll do everybody a favour.
1: I'm just wondering, actually, what sort of influence they do have now. I mean. Um my understanding is that they've been pretty much sidelined. I mean we sort of got the communique from the last energy ministers meeting which just was suggested that you know they'd take their advice, et cetera, et cetera. I and mean, my understanding is that they've actually even downgraded that and um, I mean it does actually sort of raise. The, I, I don't know what you, in, insight you have on no that or what you're hearing around the traps, John, but I mean it does certainly support that idea of maybe maybe it shouldn't even bother to exist because I mean basically now if anything, they're just a distraction, um, making a lot of noise and no one is really paying much attention.
3: Look, in quiet conversations with with leaders across states and territories, um, I, I'm told that essentially all of those uh, initiatives are dead and that basically the influence of the of the ESB in this policy making process is essentially finished. So um, that, that's what I hear.
1: I guess that begs the question then that uh, okay, that's been a failure and I don't know whether that's the nature of the structure of the organisation or maybe the personalities involved in the organisation. What should replace it? And um, I'll let John go first, and then I'll probably actually be interested to hear what David thinks.
3: I'd be very, very interested to hear what David thinks too. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 for, but, but, you know, let, let the market operator operate the market. You know, uh, is what I would say. Um, I think there's expertise there. I think I think that they are waking up to the transition that needs to happen, and and how do you coordinate and facilitate that? I still think that the energy planners, as a rule. As, you know, probably with large-scale renewables, they're kind of they're getting there, their head's there, they're kind of like thinking about that. They're still blind to the opportunities of distributed energy resources so the millions of solar panels, batteries, distributed, and electric vehicles coming online, they're blind to the opportunities there. They still think of that as being a problem, not a potential asset or a potential solution. They don't take it seriously. There is no cop on the beat. They're not facting that, so 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 it's the big blind spot in 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 policy making uh, in Australia. But really keen to hear what David's got to say.
2: Look, uh, if if anyone, if I I feel like the person that the old Oscar Wilde or Groucho Masks joke, uh, if, if if I wouldn't be a member of any club that invited me. Uh, uh, so anyone that listens to my uh, what I think is uh, probably uh, hasn't been doing enough work. And, but I would say that the essential problem is for the states to decide whether they actually want a NEM or not. Uh, if they do want a NEM, then they have to cede their authority uh, to make uh, policy to to the body that is going to make the policy. And another another issue well, is that there's always been a conflict between the ESB and the AMC over who is actually making the rules. Uh, um, and and the policy and uh, the third issue that's been identifiable since the ESB was started is that there's a lot of um, uh, reporting but no accountability uh, there's no one whose job essentially depends on the nem being a success and who has defined targets of like achieving eighty percent renewables by 2030 you know and in fact there's still no actual federal policy to achieve that it's just an, an it's actually uh, a number that, that pops out of the ISP rather than being uh, a, a policy. So there are all the things I'd say about that.
1: Right. Well, uh, but actually, just, let's, let's just pursue that just for a bit, because I mean, it's interesting what you say about that 80% renewables target. It popped out of the ISP and then fell into the labour policy in, in, in their modelling for their target. As far as I know, it's not an official target, but that's sort of what you mentioned there about whether the states want to have a NEM or not. That's actually quite a critical point because John's just mentioned the Queensland renewable energy plan. Um, a week ago, we saw the start of um, the New South Wales plan. You know, the first sort of opening up of the auction. I think it's the first sort of request for expressions of interest. In the first tender for the renewable energy zone. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen a couple of announcements from Victoria. Um, the first um, state storage target. Um, the results, latest results of the um, VRET2, the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, which sees another four big batteries, another six solar farms, I think. Um, are these things, initiatives, good initiatives because the states are getting on with it and the lack of any sort of, you know, federal, coherent federal policy or sort of or mechanism? Or do we, do we let, do we need that to continue or do we actually need to get together and just have a single national policy? John, where do you stand on this?
3: So I've had a front row seat to this play out over the last nine years, 10 years. And what we saw is the recalcitrance of the federal government, right? They actually wanted to abolish the renewable energy target. And, and so we saw this pressure build between the Commonwealth and the states in the, the old COAG forum. And what happened is that it actually broke. The, the federal government was, was so recalcitrant and unwilling to move, and yet the states faced the reality of what it actually means in terms of electricity prices, supply and the massive build program that needs to happen before you turn uneconomic polluting coal-fired power stations off. And so it actually broke. And so what happened there is that states basically just went it alone. And so Victoria was a, was a real leader, Queensland was a big leader, and they all basically did their own thing. And what you'll find is that, that all of them did it because they had to, including New South Wales. So, so a coalition state dealing with the coalition federal government because the the feds were just so out of touch with this now once that's broken what we're trying to do now is actually put the pieces back together so how do you how do you retain the benefit of that Commonwealth state collaboration um, uh, you know but still give the, the states a degree of autonomy I, I don't think you can do it just the states alone I think it has to be in conjunction with Commonwealth But I think the states did the right thing. They couldn't just be held hostage and say, we're just gonna stop because we have a mandate and a program to transition. And they got on with it and I applaud them for it.
2: I I applaud them, uh, the states uh, very much uh, for what they've done. And I I applaud the Queensland, uh, government for its plan um, uh, very much, and Victoria for, for taking the early initiatives, and, and New South Wales for, 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 for taking big steps, e- each of them, and the smaller states too. They've, all the states have come to the party. But my point is that it's not likely to... Uh, things, the states do things for the state's own reason, as you said. And the question always is: to centralise or decentralise, and it, it's 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 a perpetual policy question that never has a single answer. You know, will there be cost sa- sufficient cost savings to justify centralisation? Do we have to have the centralisation? You know, if the states are all going to do their own things, do we really need all this transmission and so on? Uh, you know. And and I want to mention the rewiring Australia, uh, the $20 billion federal government project, which I very much think and hope will survive any budget cuts and which I'm expecting some announcements on fairly shortly. But before we get to that, I'll come back to the distributed side of things, John. You mentioned your group that's working. Uh, AEMO does have uh, an orchestration project going on what do you think? How's that going, in your view, if you have a view, and and where are the next? Where will we be in a couple of years' time on integrating uh, distributed resources into into the NIM?
3: You know, the, the fact that we're doing you know Project Symphony and these other projects that are kind of looking at you know how we can extract the value, that's all positive. You know, some of the work that's been done in South Australia, for example, quite positive at the leading edge of the the integration of DR, but it's too little and it's too late, right? We're, you know, we're, we've now three million solar systems around the country. This is a massive part of the energy mix. Um, today in South Australia, 68% of their energy comes from renewable resources so far in 2022, 68%. By uh, 2026, they're forecasting 100% you know, in South Australia. Now, a, a very big component of that is coming from DER. And so it's a massive asset if we get it right, we can actually bring down costs for all energy consumers. So there can be a private benefit from a private investment, but a public benefit from that same private investment. And that's where we want to be. And so, you know, um, you know, just think about the impact of electric vehicles. Unmanaged electric vehicle charging on the grid could break the energy system. Right? This is really serious. This is a huge additional load. Think of all the petrol and diesel burnt in Australia every day that energy load coming onto the electricity network and then being available when everybody pulls into their to their garage when they get home from work and plug their EV in, you know? Um, you know, We talk about the, the duck curve, what does that do to, to the whole thing? So we've got to get ahead of this. It has to be a sophisticated approach. And the good news is the technology exists, right? It can all be done. It's just about incentivizing the business models to allow someone to say, I'm going to have a third party provider when I plug my electric vehicle in, it's going to meet certain rules. It's going to charge my vehicle in the middle of the day when there's excess solar capacity, so I'm using the cleanest electricity to run my vehicle. Or they're going to say, I want it to charge when I can get it the cheapest electricity, which, by the way, is probably going to be in the middle of the day too, but it might be at 3am or 4am. And so you know we've, we've got to have a more sophisticated approach, and the fact that, that our policymakers just remain blind to this transformation is a travesty, uh, and they're gonna get with the program, it's time's up.
2: And, and just before I hand go back on to Giles again, uh, I, you know, this interests me because I do it myself, um, uh, but, you know, it requires a lot of software. Y- you would hope if you plug your car in in New South Wales, it's gonna work the same way as if you plug it in in Victoria, your car, and there's also a lot of technology change and uh, on the inverter side of things, and I'm just wondering uh, at least I think there is uh, what developments we're seeing, what software you know there's a question of whether software to run it all should be based in the cloud for security reasons or or and who should own the inverter is a, is another sort of uh, topical question Con- when I say own it control when it what it does and and, and when it does it to do. do does the Smart Energy Council have, a, have an idea on this yet or a, a policy or, or still in the fact finding situation yourselves?
3: Well, it, it's really about what's possible. So let me give you two examples. You know, we've got a, a company, we've got several companies that do what's called managed EV charging. And they've built up their expertise from actually running virtual power plants. And in a virtual power plant, you, you charge the battery when there's heaps of electricity and you discharge it when there's none and the prices are high. Well, that expertise, that external control and capability can be applied to electric vehicles. So you can actually plug a vehicle in, monitor the market, forecast the market, and actually say, we know that at 2 a.m. You know, prices are going to go negative, perhaps, right? And in, at that time, I can supply electricity to my customer at zero cents, right, free, and they pocket the payment for actually taking the electricity. So that's, that's possible, proven, rolled out, available today. Another, another innovation is is two companies working together uh, in in the solar space that have an inverter in place and local software that actually detects when you've got excess solar energy that's not being used in your home being fed into your electric vehicle in the garage so basically sitting there trickle charging at any time there's excess, you're using your, 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 your electric vehicle as a battery you know <laughs> and so the technology's there so I think that's not the problem. it's about first um raising awareness about what's possible and two creating the incentives um to to for for people to actually engage so that you know um uh, you know electric vehicle charging must be managed charging right there's no other way that we can do it for example right so that's the sort of thing it's possible there are companies doing it let's you know let's put it on steroids and take it to market
1: stuff uh, John uh, I'm just interested in, and, and and David also I'm interested in the views I'm um, just sort of looking at Australia from afar as I've been doing um, for the last uh, month or so and just in the last week um, a lot of the concerns raised about sort of the future of electricity prices and um, and things going on I mean you mentioned at the start of the podcast David that um, these sort of headlines will sort of encourage people to sort of turn to rooftop solar which I guess is a good thing um, but what's actually going on here I mean are we sort of um, sort of people sort of Threatening to sort of tip the baby out with the bathwater—is this just sort of positioning? Are people wanting a certain thing, and sort of you know sort of warning of mayhem if it, if it doesn't happen? What's what what are the issues here? How real are these threats? I are mean, we understand the pressure on wholesale prices and particularly fuel input costs and you know international prices and things like that? But in terms of sort of the domestic market, exactly where are we sat right now?
2: Well. If I could just talk about that before handing over to Giles just for a second. I mean, the fact is that, um, you know, what happens in the spot market flows through to customers with a lag. That's the point you have to understand. Most electricity, one way or another, is sold, is sold forward, you know, um, and traded and the spot prices, what we see every day, uh, are an indication, more or less, that, of where prices are going over the next couple of years. So in 2021, the spot price was $60 a megawatt hour, and uh, for the next couple of years, the futures price are sitting at about $150 in New South Wales, and you know more or less the same in 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 other states. Uh, and the coal price continues to be very high, and the gas price continues to be very high. And and we don't gas sets the price a lot of the time at the margin, and if it's not gas, it's hydro, which just waits till the gas runs out and then sets an even higher price. Uh, And until we get enough new supply into the system, uh, that's all the coal and gas prices come down. That's where we are for two or three years. But it will fix itself eventually, but it's not going to fix itself immediately. So customers, big and small, are going to be paying more for their electricity for the next couple of years and customers, big and small, will therefore do what they always do when they face high prices. They will try and get around them by either consuming less, being more efficient, by switching to alternative fuels, or by lowering the cost by increasing supply. And the easiest way and most proven way of doing it is by putting more solar panels on your roof, wherever whether it's a factory or, or whatever it is.
3: Yeah, t- totally. New entrants to the solar market think that customers are going to buy because they're you know, environmentally conscious. They talk to 10, 50, 100 customers and they come back and say, people buy because of price, they want to save money. So if electricity bills are going up, that really exacerbates and turbocharges that interest in solar, in batteries, and not just for householders. Think about the commercial industrial opportunities. These companies that are very energy dependent um, are now facing absolutely massive bills, big price increases, lower profitability, their incentive to move is has just been you know, just, just made all the more urgent. The other opportunity is household gas prices. A lot of people are still connected to the gas and so I think there's an opportunity to run a campaign to cut the gas. Cut the gas to your house. Cut the gas to your business. You can do very energy efficient heat pumps for hot water provision at a fraction of the cost of, of, uh, of gas. You can do space heating. And you can do induction cooktop cooking. And so you put those three things together, you've basically eliminated the need for gas at a house. And I think that's gonna be the big trend through 2023, 2024, as these high prices, David says, washes through, and people haven't really felt it, they haven't seen it yet in Australia, it's coming. And and as David says, with with no resolution of the energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, then I think this is going to persist for some time to come.
1: Okay. Well, look, guys. Um, I think it's probably time to sort of free John from his um his cupboard in the in the in the in the league's club in uh inner city uh inner city Sydney and um and set you free to go off and listen to the prime minister and hopefully make a um sensible announcement about the future of the energy policy in Australia and um I shall emerge from the uh, from my glass house in Somerset where I have not been throwing stones and you'll be pleased to know David that the sun has been shining. Um. And um John, I'd just like to thank you very much for joining the um, Energy Insiders podcast this week.
3: And and let me also say, you guys are heroes, right? Doing this weekend week, in, week <laughs> out. Got Giles, the the prod- prodigious amount of work that you do on on the website, the two websites and more. Absolutely fantastic. You're heroes of mine. You're heroes of the industry. Um, you know, so pleased to, to to be here and support. Well,
1: those very kind words. Um, thank you very much, John. Um, thank you, David. Um, and, and thanks um, to our sponsors. Yes, of course, Pylon and Evergen um, for their ongoing and continued support. And um, thanks to all the listeners out there. Um, I'd I'd like to uh,
2: put in my personal uh, thanks to Evergen once again. Every time I look at my $16 a month electricity bill and think that's paying for my car as well as the house uh, with with, uh, seven people in it. uh, Sure, I'm on a time of use tariff, but I mean, Evergen uh, does all the uh, smarts for me. So, uh, as John said, they've proved it works.
1: Very good. Fantastic. Okay. I think that's a wrap for this week's podcast. Um, Thanks once again to everyone out there. Thanks to John Grimes and the Smart Energy Council. Um, Thanks to all the listeners and we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen